The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre, post, yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call this show About Race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me in the Panoply Studios in Brooklyn are Tanzina Vega of CNN Money. Hi, Tanzina. Hi, how are you? Good, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Jamel Bowie of Slate. Welcome, Jamel. Hello. Glad you're up here in New York to be with us in person. And we also have About Race regular Tanner Colby. Good to see you again, Tanner. Good to be here, Anna. Thank you. This week, more police shootings. Assassinations? Is that too crazy of a descriptor? Extrajudicial execution. Yeah, because I, right? I, I don't feel like shootings is a is a strong enough word. And police involved is uh, hardly the yeah, action verb it's, we're it looking for. Yeah, it seems kind of, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, the, so there were, there were I'm going to call them assassinations. There were two police assassinations. That sounds, that sounds intense, too. Extrajudicial <laughs> killings. Extrajudicial killings, murders. Yeah. This time of Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa and Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte. We'll be discussing the shootings and responses to them later in the show. But as we record this, it's the weekend before the first presidential debate, and we think it's important to set some expectations for the moderators and ourselves. Okay, so the first thing is, for starters, there are no Latino or Asian moderators in an election where Donald Trump has made not only immigration, but race a key issue. And for those of you who are listening who weren't paying attention Trump made a comment earlier this week that immigration is, quote, not just a matter of terrorism, but a matter of quality of life, end quote, as if you needed him to be more blunt about what his ideas really are. So going back to the idea of the debate, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not feeling particularly confident if, if we take, as an example, Matt Lauer's performance during that forum on national security. And I'm also not personally sure how much faith we should hold out for the press, especially in regards to the way it has, in my opinion, and I know others, consistently and glibly sidestepped real issues about race and, race, <laughs> race <laughs> and ethnicity and sexism. So I want to start first with Jamel's recent piece for Slate, which was titled, Do Half of Trump Supporters Really Belong in a Basket of Deplorables? And he, this is posed as a question. Jamel, I want to know what the impetus behind the writing of the piece was and the math that led you to answer yes to the question you posed in the headline. The impetus of the piece, and I think Tallahassee Coast of the Atlantic, I think we had simultaneous sort of reactions to this. And I'll say it was, it was less reactions to Clinton, more reactions to the reaction. So the reaction to Clinton generally among the press was, how could she say this? This is a gaffe. This uh, is unacceptable. How could you refer to you know X number of Americans as somehow deplorable or belonging to a group of deplorable people? Uh, I recall there is the usual kind of finger waving, like you don't talk about the other the other side's voters. There are some commenters who said things to the effect of, "Oh, well, Hillary Clinton made a bigoted statement," which is just like getting to an, yeah. another level of insanity right. that right. I can't. You they know, don't understand the word bigoted. Right. Right. <laughs> so my reaction was to. You know, rather than try to do a bit of theater criticism about what Clinton said, to ask whether what she said was true at all, because half is a quantifiable thing, and sure. and there's enough social science data and research on opinions about race and and racial groups and and so on and so forth that you can actually begin to kind of figure out whether that's accurate or not. And so I have a nice shelf at my apartment of social science about race and about uh, race and politics. And so I kind of just like started flipping through my books and flipping through my um, large collection of PDFs and research on my Evernote to kind of piece together, could you fairly describe half of Trump supporters as falling in a basket deplorable base? And uh, and I narrowed the question a bit based on their views about race. Okay. And I I think the, the clear answer is yes, if you're looking at data from the American National Election Studies, if you're looking from surveys uh, of all Republicans, you know, stretching back to 2008 to the present, if you're looking at surveys of Trump supporters in particular during the primaries, you can you can begin to piece together a picture of the of at least one portion of Trump support that is very motivated by racial prejudice, mm-hmm. by negative beliefs about Hispanic immigrants, Muslims, and uh, black Americans. 
there's a valuable parenthetical to have about how I think Clinton's rhetoric is creating too sharp of a divide. I don't think it's so clean to say that people who may be supporting Trump because they feel anxious about the world or whatever, I think that's tied in to race and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in the same way people express racial anxiety in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. But going by the, and this is Clinton's term, the gross generalization that she's doing yeah, yeah, but about 35 to 45 percent of Trump supporters, you could fairly say, fall into a, a basket of deplorables. Did you did you think that number 50 percent when you first heard it or, or, or when you first heard that she'd uttered it? Did you think that that was high? No, I was like or too low or just about right. So this is one of the things where I think people kind of neglect. I, I have this. It's it's a bit, I think, uh, almost banal, but it, it's important. America is really big. This is a very large country. There are about 315 million people. And so thinking about Trump's, like half of Trump supporters, Trump gets about 40%, 42% in most polls. There's about like 160 million registered voters, mm-hmm. um, uh, people who who have voted or are in the position to vote. That comes to like, you know, 30-something million people, or rather 60-something million people as far as Trump's support goes. And so that's like 30 million people, 31 million people. That would be half of that. That's not really that many people in a country of 300 million. It's 10% of the population. So if you're asking me, do I think 10% of the population you could describe as being bigoted? Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, in that, in that, in, in that case, it's, it's too low. Yeah. But um, the idea that it's somehow beyond the pale and people said this to me, that it's beyond the pale to describe 10% of Americans as somehow being bigoted. It's just sort of 20% of Americans believe in the same thing. So, like, of course, 10% of Americans are going to hold views that, um, you know, just a generation ago were quite common. Let me, let me guess. Also- Most of the people who, who, who were appalled at the idea that 10% of the country would hold racist beliefs were probably themselves white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to a person. <laughs> right. To a person. Sorry, Tansy, and I, I interrupted you. I was going to say, I think a lot of the the reaction to this, the press reaction, were also white reporters mm-hmm. um, who I think were sort of like, oh, you know, there's this, there's this comment that was made. And we've been talking a lot about this false equivalency. And are we putting things on the scale, you know, equally when we're looking at what things that Trump's, are, that Trump's saying versus what Hillary's saying? And I think that this was sort of one of those moments where, you know— there's there's almost this thing where, as people who cover race, we've often had to, in our own newsrooms, explain, right, mm-hmm. that racism exists sometimes and yeah. that this is a real phenomenon and mm-hmm. this is a real thing. And I think the white press, you know, core largely is sort of taken aback in a way by this. You know, it's like, I, I, and I had an exchange with someone on, on Twitter who I'm, I'm not going to, you know, was in, in our DMs and it was a white reporter who was like, well, can't we separate you know, racists from being bad people. Like, you know, I think part of the... That sounds like something I saw on Twitter. Right. I wonder if it was the same person. And so there was a, you know, there was a private conversation. I'm not going to name names, but it was someone that said, you know, part of what what I think is happening is that when we're having this conversation about racism and, and white supremacy, a lot of white people feel like they're being attacked, feel like they're being called bad people because they're being, you know, associated with racism or racist. And I said, well, it's not a question of saying every white person is a racist. Right. What we're talking about here, because he said, well, why don't, if we if we can separate those things, it would make it easier for whites to want to sort of work on getting rid of this whole racism issue, right? And I said, well, the problem is it's not about separate. First of all, it's not about calling every white person a racist, number one. Number two, we're talking about a system in which whites, whether they consider themselves racist or not, have benefited from, right? right? And that's the difference. And there was there's sort of this resistance to really wanting to see that. And I think we're seeing that in the rebranding of what the white supremacy movement as the yeah. alt-right, right? There's sort of a gentler, kinder, gentler tone, I mm-hmm. think, that's being taken with something that for most people of color is pretty frightening. Oh, I wonder, like, where where have these white reporters been the past eight years? I mean, th- did they not notice what happened after Obama was elected and the various strains, or at least the sort of racism and, and racial epithets? Well, they surrounded him before he was even elected, but that really, really came into being, for lack of a better phrase. I'm confused by some of the white political press corps, or maybe I should say this the political press corps, yeah. <laughs> because well, first of all, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that there are many people of color in the political. There aren't. There press never corps. have been. No. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, is there anyone at the Times? There might be. I think there's one reporter that I can think okay. of in National that's on yeah. the po- politics yeah. team. Uh-huh. You know, but Yamiche yeah. is one. Yeah. 
but she's a recent. She's been there for yeah. about a year. Jamel, so. what, what do you know of I, besides yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it's Slate. I, like it's just me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Samsung okay. NPR. Um, but suffice it to say, I mean, this media diversity conversation has been going on, and I think I've had this conversation on social media for a while now. The question is, when we're talking about our press corps and representation, people of color, women, are underrepresented in all of these top beats, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, Washington, whether it's investigative, whether it's, you know, business, science, what have you. So so there may there are reporters out there who are doing this work, but yeah. they're not the mainstream. You know, I, I think that the, the, the makeup of the political press corps does in part explain why I feel, and I'd be curious to know whether you agree with this, I feel like there's been a certain bending over backwards to excuse Trump supporters' motivations with arguments about how it's all about economic insecurity or anxiety. It's almost kind of the weird inverse of the, it's the economy, stupid, or, right. or rather it's the it's the other party <laughs> using that as a as an excuse for, for something I think that goes much deeper. As I mentioned a couple minutes ago, there was a reporter who I saw on Twitter. I don't know if I call him a political reporter. I'd maybe call him a pundit. I'm not sure he actually does reporting. Arguing, I think, essentially that, well, racists aren't necessarily bad, horrible people. Like, he was trying to split hairs in a way that I found a bit curious, though unsurprising. And then there was a, a piece in the in the magazine The Week that argued that Trumpist nationalism is not racist. The headline was, liberals keep denigrating the new nationalism as racist. This is nonsense. You know, Jamel, at the end of your piece, the piece that we started off talking about, you wrote, um, and I'm just going to quote this, you said, the dismay over Clinton's comments, the insistence that it represents some kind of insult and not a statement of truth reflects the degree to which many of our reporters and observers still shy away from these facts. But this moment demands clarity. Readers don't need to know whether Clinton made a gaffe. They need to know whether she was right. Do millions of Americans hold explicitly racist views? Yes. Do roughly half of Donald Trump's supporters fall into a so-called basket of deplorables? Yes. Can, I just want that to, sounds much stronger when it's read out loud. Uh, <laughs> and it also depends who you, if you consider racism deplorable, right? I mean, right. there was a Huffington Post study, I think, or HuffPo wrote about this study where it said, well, yeah, there are people who say, well, yeah, I, I do have these, you know, what many will consider racist views, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person, mm-hmm. right? And so that whole concept of being deplorable as a result of being or considering someone racist, that's the other thing, too. Like, are we, are we considering, I think for most people of color, we'd say, yeah, that's not that's not the right mm-hmm. side. I think some of what's going on is that very much the popular understanding of racism is still very much it's being an asshole. It's like a different it's a different category of being an asshole, uh-huh. right? So it's like if you say to someone that thing you said is racist, what they hear is you're calling me an especially egregious form of asshole. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm in, a bad person. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. And I think in political reporting, that understanding I mean, rather, rather among political reporters, that understanding is very much in full effect. You know, when I'm talking about it, and I think when many journalists and observers of color are, are thinking about this, not so much thinking about about it in terms of people, you know, being assholes and thinking about it in terms of systemic inequality and the organization of society. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to something like the deplorables flap, well, the argument I would make isn't so much that this matters because we're trying to take account of who in America is like a jerk. It matters because there is actually a candidate running on a platform of like there is an America for whites and there's an America for everyone who is not white. Yeah. And so in that in that context, you know, voting based off of racist views really does matter. We're not calling your friends and your family or whatever. And I should say, I think I think the resistance to having this discussion is very much a sociological function, very much a function of the fact that if you are a white reporter, just just the, the demographics of politics mm-hmm. in the United States, there's a better than even chance that there's someone in your immediate family or friend circle that that is, if not a Trump voter, then sympathetic to Trump. Mm-hmm. And having to think through the idea that this person that you care about and love might be supporting a racist demagogue for reasons that are racist, it's very painful, and it's better to just sort of deny it. No, um, I, I, as a white person who has relatives who are voting for Trump, I would disagree in that if you're a white person who considers yourself to have moved on, be more enlightened, to not be racist, regardless of however many subliminal prejudices you may still maintain and you've got that relative that's racist you you know it oh uncle jim he's racist he's voting for trump what the fuck you may not call him out at thanksgiving dinner because it's uncomfortable and you don't know what to do 
but you don't want to think less of Uncle Jim because he's racist. You're just like, yeah, Uncle Jim's fucking racist. Right. But um, do you think that you they're... I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go, no, you go. I was going to say, do you think... Because my sense is that there are a lot of people who want to support Trump and are not going to be Uncle Jim the racist, but don't want to be honest and open about the fact that, they're, that they want to support Trump because of this sort of, you know, racist connection that well, he has. In other words, yeah. I think there's a lot of closeted... Trump supporters. That's what worries me and about some of these polls. I'm, yeah. well, I mean, I'm not a racist, but I just don't really agree with any of that Black Lives Matter stuff. And right. So or be, I'm not a racist, but I do like Donald Trump because you're, you're assuming it's a, it's a conscious form of avoidance when in fact it's 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 subliminal. It's under the surface. It's, you know, it's 20 years of misogynistic Hillary hatred that was just poisoned people to where they can't conceive of voting for her. They were for John Kasich the whole primary and then now it's just like, well, and then they rationalize it some way without ever getting into the racial part of the equation. I've noticed a certain glibness and amusement on many white, often male, uh, members of the, of the political press with regards to Trump and the threat he poses. Like they, they, they refuse to see it in, in racial terms and therefore they have a really easy time mocking Trump in a way that suggests that they don't take him seriously, which, okay, but he is the Republican nominee for president. There was something in GQ, I'm assuming you saw this, Jamel, a story that was titled The Undecided Voter, and there was one passage or an anecdote from a anonymous white male political reporter, I believe, uh, who said, and I'm going to quote him this time, I'm going to do some more quoting. <laughs> he said, I cover this stuff every day. So for me, four years of Trump, selfishly, sounds a lot more enticing just because it's going to be a dumpster fire. And in Clinton administration would be more of what we're seeing now, which is carefully orchestrated speeches, behind the scenes wealthy McWealthysons going in and out of the White House, and really horrible transparency with the press. Gun to my head, I would probably vote Trump because of my feelings about Hillary and my, I just want to see what happens. I was not the only person to be disgusted by <laughs> that comment, but also to, to notice that, of course, he has the luxury to, to, to feel that way. But I think that sometimes this glibness or inability to take very seriously what is going on in this country and the rhetoric around it can seep down even into news coverage. And there was a friend of mine today who pointed out a piece that was in today's Times, the headline of which reads, Trump's crime policies might hit minorities harder, experts say. And, you know, as she as she put it to me, you know, journalists should be allowed and encouraged to report on facts. And even though you can't predict the future as a sure thing, there's a big difference between will likely affect and might affect. And in this case, if you had a, any kind of simple, basic analysis of the history of criminal policy, it would lead a person to conclude that, yes, his policies will hit minorities harder, not might, experts say. So there, mm -hmm. even, they, there even seems to be a kind of giving him a, uh, giving him a pass, even in headlines, and, and also sometimes in the, body, in the body of these stories, and I hate to like, pick on the times the most, certainly we've seen a lot of that there. I remember that there was one reporter there uh, called Trump's lying about where birtherism originated. He he described Trump as being mischievous. Like this is all a fucking joke. Um, and it's not a fucking joke, and it doesn't. It seems to be a fucking joke among a lot of the white political reporters whose work I read, and not so much by the many fewer reporters of color. And I, I, I think, think when you see the vi you saw the vi you all saw the video that the Times put together and it wasn't these weren't new videos. These were videos that I'm sure all of us had already seen about people of color being pushed, having physical altercations at Trump rallies, the language that was being used to describe uh, Latinos, uh, Muslims and blacks in particular and women mm -hmm. at these rallies. And so what the Times did was they took all these, you know, the the probably the some of the worst ones and made this like five, seven-minute video, right. you know, montage ago, right? of this, yeah. right. And having known reporters of color who have covered Trump rallies, they've, you know, one in particular said that months ago, she said, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable at these rallies. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a different reality when you're looking at this and saying, am I going to be able to walk down the street in a certain environment if this is the language that's being used, yeah. if this is this new... Because we were sort of protected in a way... 
I think, with political correctness, right? And that's sort of what we're, this is a backlash against. Mm-hmm. That's this whole make America great, let's tell it like it is, you know. It's, it's a, a backlash, backlash against, against Barack Obama. Uh, against yeah. Barack Obama. It's a backlash against the, the PC culture of, of the 90s and, and the early 2000s in many ways. We can't say this, we can't do that, we're not allowed to say this. Now the Pandora's box has been ripped open and people want to say whatever they want to say and just get it out, right? And that means saying a lot of ugly things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things that for some people are ugly, for other people could mean life or death, right? right? And right. that is the difference when you're a person of color. It's not even about politics, I think, at this point. It's less about that. And I mean, it is about that, but it's also the feeling that you have, the feeling that yeah. we have when we right. see these videos, the feeling that we have when we see people say the things that they're saying. It's not I mean, an intellectual exercise. This isn't intellectual. Yeah. It's fear. Yeah. It's real fear. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you're a, a person of color and you're brown and you look a certain way or you're a woman, there is a real fear there. Jamal, would, you were going to say something. No, I, I, I think that's right. I think I think the degree to which quite a bit of the political press doesn't seem to take Trump seriously obscures the extent to which there's a reason why white nationalists have really rallied behind the Trump candidacy because they they understand what this is about. We're going to be politically incorrect. We're going to rage against the PC culture. Is not if that were the case, then there wouldn't have been a hubbub over deplorables, right? Because that was a politically incorrect thing to say. But immediately the reaction was, "Why wasn't Hillary Clinton being politically correct?" No, this is very specifically about the idea that women and people of color are deserving of the same respect as white men are. This is very much about the fact that Barack Obama, for eight years, uh, has been has been in some ways America's like national father figure as president, and that is psychologically disturbing to a lot of Americans. This unwillingness to see the Trump movement for what it is does bleed down into this unwillingness to really take seriously what what it means when you have a presidential nominee who, whose theory of citizenship is very much obviously tied. To race, you know, Barack Obama is suspect because I mean, look at him. He's Barack Obama. He can't really be an American. Judge Gonzalo Curiel is mm-hmm. suspect because he is of Mexican heritage. So can we really trust that he can do its job fairly as a judge? Black Americans will be subject to national stop and frisk, uh, but white Americans will not. Muslims will be kept out of the country. You know, we'll build the wall. There'll be mass deportation. These things are either serious. Presidential, a presidential nominee is saying these things, which strongly suggests that once in office, those will be priorities for that nominee. And it represents sort of a direct, a direct existential threat to the non-white citizens of the United States. And it's it's maddening to me not only that the press does not deal with this directly, but the focus is far more on. Trump supporters. And I'm all for empathy for for my fellow citizens. I think it is valuable to figure out why people are supporting Trump. But I am disturbed by the the, the extent to which there's a cottage industry around going to depressed industrial towns and talking to white people who are hard on, hard on their luck. And there is no equivalent of going to places like Dearborn, Michigan, or Baltimore, Maryland, going to wherever there are people who would be directly threatened by a Trump presidency and trying to figure out yeah. what they're thinking about this moment. Yeah. I know a lot about what working class whites are thinking about this yeah. moment. I don't know very much about the second generation Arab family that's pra- that is Muslim and is legitimately worried that yeah. maybe their grandparents will be deported under a Trump presidency. There's such a lack of curiosity and, and the demand or the, even the request that we collectively understand or empathize or humanize even with racist Trump supporters is not extended (laughs) to the targets of Trump's rhetoric. Jamel and I have had some conversations about this over text a couple times, maybe over email. And I think what you're getting at, what you were getting at, Tanzina, again, is the lack of appreciation for the emotion, how this feels personal as opposed to, again, just intellectual or theoretical. Jamel, I mean, are you are you are you kind of are you discouraged by the way that the press has covered this election or is it something more substantial? Are you disgusted by it? I think it goes closer to disgust precisely Mm -hmm. because this isn't a game anymore. Like this is it's very much the case that after the UK voted to leave 
the European Union, there is a noticeable, noticeable spike in hate crimes mm -hmm. that the nativists and the xenophobes and the racists in Britain took the message mm -hmm. and saw this as validation for their ideas and beliefs. Likewise, right now in the United States, there's been a noticeable uptick in hate crimes against Muslim Americans because the, the nativists and the racists mm -hmm. and the xenophobes are taking the message. Even if through some miracle, a Trump administration isn't trying to deport millions of people, it'll remain the case that just by electing Trump, you will have done generational damage to America's social fabric by validating literally the worst people in this country. And also essentially relitigating or bringing up for relitigation the, the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Like the question on the table in this election really is, are non-whites full citizens in this country? Are they equal partners? And the fact that this is not the tenor of conversation about this election, that we're all talking about gaffes and email and stuff and not about this very, very, you know, serious decision that we're about to make about whether the United States will remain a pluralist democracy is disturbing to me. And it disgusts me that <laughs> quite a few of my peers are not thinking of the selection in those terms, especially since it's not as if we're that far removed from the period of racial violence in the United States. Right. But a lot of people feel that they are. Yeah. A lot of people and, that's, that are. and that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, Obama was elected. We're post-racial. We're done. We're good. Right. Or and, even and they think that we're, far, that we're far removed from, let's say, the 60s. Right. You know, which it, we're not. It was only half a century ago. Right. Right. I just I just watched an interview with William Shatner, who was alive in the 1960s, who was alive when Emmett Till was murdered. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton was alive when, when Emmett Till was murdered. My father lived in the South at a time where there were different water fountains for white people and African Americans. I mean, he's still alive. This is not that far removed. I'm curious to know if anyone here th thinks that Hillary Clinton will address, continue to address Trump's rhetoric around race, if she'll do it during the debate on Monday, if she should do it. I mean, personally, and again, this is why I'm not a political strategist, I think she should. I don't think she should shy away from it. I don't think that she should take back comments that she's already made. I think she should double down on them. I, well, I think I, what, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I think she nailed it in the, the speech she gave against the alt-right. She did it properly and avoided the blowback blow back in a way that she didn't with basket of deplorables because basket of deplorables was just an inartful term, mm -hmm. even if, to Jamel's point, technically accurate. So when she gave the all right speech, she blamed Trump and the Breitbart contingent for fanning the flames of racial hatred, exploiting racial hatred. And in the other speech in the basket of deplorables, she insulted the American voter, which is just, you know, well, she insulted some American voters. Yeah, but any any American voter can say, hey, you're talking about me. No, which she was not talking about me. <laughs> any white person. A white person could say, well, hey, she's mm -hmm. talking about me because I support Trump, but I'm not racist. Okay, so any any Trump supporter. Any Trump supporter, yes. Okay. That's, that's more technically correct. If, I, oh, if Burger King wants to sell me a burger, they can talk about how great their burgers are. They can talk about how bad McDonald's burgers are, and they can talk about all the agribusiness people were pumping, you know, uh, McDonald's food full of chemicals. But what you don't do is call people idiots for shopping at McDonald's if you want them to then come and shop at Burger King. But see, I don't think that Hillary Clinton made, made that comment and it was using that particular language because she was trying to win Trump supporters over to her side. No, she was trying to make a different point and she... She bungled it because everyone focused on basket of deplorables. I don't know. I just don't, I didn't think of it. As a, I didn't think of it as a bungle. My first initial reaction was ooh when I first heard about it. Like I don't know about that. That seems pretty provocative. And then I was like, no, she's fucking right. She's I don't right. think this is and, this is an election where I think the Trump supporters are decided. I don't think yeah, this is right. now a question of let's try to change your mind if you're going to support Trump. I, I, that's a lost cause. Mm -hmm. The media has lost, in my opinion, a lot of control of the narrative there. Trump supporters and his campaign, what's the focus now is will people who are on the fence vote for Hillary at all or mm -hmm. will they vote at all? Mm -hmm. and, and that's where the question is. I think you've got, the, you know, to your point, should she address race? Well, she almost has to. You know, th this whole... Mm -hmm. This whole election cycle has been largely about race. And she and her language evolved over the political cycle from all of a sudden talking about and largely because of the pressure from Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. other groups putting out her husband's record, et cetera, et cetera. And she's had to 
become way more sophisticated in her language around race using terms like structural racism and yeah. implicit bias and all of these sorts of things that those of us who read and write about this stuff all the time talk about and mm-hmm. know about, right? So her language around race has gotten much more sophisticated. She's had to do that. She's lost a contingent of young brown voters, maybe some white voters as well, who don't want to vote, who don't want to participate, who are young and saying, you know, we're, we're just going to sit this is one that, out. Is that contingent significant? I don't think they're significant in states like New York and California, but I think they could states? make a difference. They could. I don't know. There are so many variables in these no. swing states, you know. It's sort of... <laughs> It, it in some sense reflects not just Clinton, but the extent to which you have a whole generation of voters who their first experience participating in politics, either in 2008 or 2012, was voting for someone who they really liked and yeah. that they loved, mm-hmm. that they could be inspired by. Mm-hmm. And it is hard to go from that to recognizing that most of the people you vote for are not going to be like that. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it is important to... It, it, the voting for the lesser evil is, in fact, quite important because mm-hmm. less evil, less evil in certain circumstances can mean the difference between a pathway for good and like profound evil. So, like the thing I always go back to is back in 1860, Lincoln was 100 percent the lesser evil, right? Like 100 percent. I don't know if we should trust this guy because he kind of used to want to send black people back to Africa. But supporting Lincoln ended up being one of the most important things an American could have done in 1860. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never know what's going to be in 1860. We don't know that right. ahead of time. Right. You know, not, not to compare it to 1860, but it, it is a pretty pivotal election. And I mean, the thing is, it felt that way to me in 2008 as well. So perhaps every every presidential election is going to feel pivotal in a way that perhaps it didn't before. I mean, it's hard It's hard to say. I, I've only been I on this Jamal's earth since the 70s. I think Jamal's point is valid, though. I mean, yeah. it's like there was a, a candidate that people were just like, oh, my God. You know, there mm-hmm. was this feeling that hadn't happened, I think, for many of us and had to witness something like that. You know, and I know in newsrooms they were saying, regardless of the outcome, don't anybody show any emotion, you mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. of course, people are going to show emotion. You can't yeah. not, you know. But I think if you, you know, I think in the in the Hillary was at in between two ferns recently. And Zach said to her, for a lot of voters, you're going to be the first white president right? Mm-hmm. if you get elected and it's a joke but it's kind of you know for well, a lot of a young minute. people no way no but, but, but i mean it was a joke okay, but it was okay. sort of was, the point <laughs> was for a lot of young people yeah. you know who came into you know who haven't like to jamel's point who haven't been yeah. you know who've been enamored right. with obama yeah. who have who are used to you know seeing eight years of a black president yeah. right and i think now it's sort of for those of us and, and i think this is a little bit generational those of us who've been through a couple of election cycles mm-hmm. that haven't been so pretty mm-hmm. um 2000 yeah. anyone yeah we sat through that and kind of had to figure that out and now you've got that but there was no black lives matter there was no woke black and brown young consciousness Mm -hmm. at the level that there is today and Mm so this is i think par for the course when you have a very quote-unquote woke young activist you know Mm -hmm. uh, community who's just pushing back on everything i Mm -hmm. mean you've seen the black lives matter platform demands you know this is not a one issue group of people now whether or not that that this tactic of not voting is going to hurt us I think it's a very serious issue. I'm going to leave it there because we're going to move on to other topics, namely the police shootings in Oklahoma and in North Carolina. Okay, Jamel, I know you need to jet. Thank you so much for being here. Come back to the studio when you're in New York next time. Yeah, I need to I need to duck out. Oh. But thank you for having me. Thank you for thank you for being with us. But we want to know what you've got to say, listeners. The first debate happens on Monday, but we'll be recording another episode that Friday. So there's plenty of time to send us your emails and voice memos. The address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. So moving on to Tulsa and to Charlotte. There have been sometimes violent protests in Charlotte, while Tulsa has been mostly reported as calm in the wake of the latest shooting. While we were or are on the air, or a little bit before we got on the air, there was a report that a video from Charlotte had been released, and I have not seen it, but Tanzina, you have, so can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what what you saw on it? Sure. So the video, this is the Keith Scott shooting in Charlotte, and, you know, one of the reasons, I think, why the Charlotte police has not yet decided to release any body cam video from that shooting, unlike the Tulsa PD, which released the video and actually has, I believe, charged the officer involved in that shooting, and the Tulsa shooting, for those of you 
who don't recall, it was Terrence Crutcher, and he was on the side of the road, and he had pulled over, you know, had his hands up in the air and, and was surrounded by officers and shot and killed in the street. And so Tulsa had a very different reaction mm-hmm. to the shootings. I think part of it was because the video was released quickly, because the officer has been charged relatively quickly, um, unlike in a lot of other cases. This video, Charlotte has not yet, as of right now, released video, but we have video from Keith Scott's wife, okay. who filmed her interaction, the interaction with him. And so there is, so the video sort of starts out and she's walking towards the scene and it's very hard to see what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, a, it's not a clear sight. She's sort of yelling to the cops saying he has a, a brain injury of sorts. So she's trying to tell him that he has a brain injury, that he's taken his medication. Um, and you hear a lot of back and forth, drop it, drop it. And I don't know. And again, I, I don't know if he was armed or not, right. you know, what the situation is. We haven't had that reported out. She starts getting closer and closer to the scene. There are a bunch of cop cars there. And suddenly you hear shots. He goes down and she says, oh, my God, they shot him. And again, I'm paraphrasing. But what I won't forget, and I get goosebumps and you can see, I yeah. mean, it's like just I won't forget her saying he better be alive. Again, we saw this with Philando Castile, right? Yeah. The level of calm mm-hmm. that we as women of color, and particularly black women, have had to almost get used to this, right? Like, think about, and I'm not judging on whether or not he was armed or not armed, but imagine it's the middle of the day, it's a suburban street, and your husband has just been shot and killed in front of you. Right. Okay, I, I just just the, that alone mm-hmm. is is devastating. And again, I, I, the, the goosebumps are, it's really disturbing. And she's like, he better be alive, he better be alive, you know, and she keeps walking closer to the scene and she's just dumbfounded by the fact that they actually shot him, but almost very aware that this was a reality, that this could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, I mean, I don't know how I would have reacted seeing my husband, God forbid, you know, killed in the right. middle of the street in the middle of the day. I don't think it would be with that level of, of calm. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's also trauma. That's shock. Right. You do react in sure. a certain way when something you saw that with Philando Castile. So so that level of sort of this is happening. I'm seeing this happen and I'm filming it. And, and she even says, I'm not even going to get close to you, to mm. the police. She says, you know, but I'm going to film all of this and I'm filming all of it now. And no officers, you know, appeared to reach out to her or say anything to her about it. They're still surrounding Scott's body. So it's disturbing. And and I think the Charlotte PD, you know, is probably going to be under more pressure now to release this footage. But the thing about body cameras and the debate on civil rights is, is exactly this. There's no guarantee that just because you have footage, like we see with dash cam footage, mm-hmm. right, that doesn't necessarily stop something from happening, it doesn't necessarily prevent right. something. And then the, there are lots of questions nationally within, within individual police departments about who and how to control that footage. Can they afford to store that footage? How right. long do they store it? When do they release it? Can journalists see mm-hmm. it? The privacy of the people who are being filmed, right. the privacy. So, so there are so many issues with body cameras right now. Mm-hmm. To, just to assume that we're going to release these videos and that's going to make a difference, I, you know, I don't know. Do you think that this is going to be that either of these shootings are going to come up uh, during the debate on Monday? I would assume that they would, but I mean, possibly because Trump has just made this big. We're going to take a failed unconstitutional policy and roll it out nationwide. The stop and frisk, uh, yeah, yeah, which just shows he doesn't understand anything about policing. Um, not that you, not that, not that you needed him to say that to know that, <laughs> right? Not that we needed him to to say that. I hope so, and I think it will, and uh, hopefully it'll be another chance for to show the uh, contrast between the two candidates and dealing with these sorts of things. Well, so this kind of leads to an another or the other big question here. Tanner, this might actually be kind of echoes of our conversation that we had a couple weeks ago about Colin Kaepernick. But Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> since Black Lives Matter, you know, started since Colin Kaepernick's protests began and then were echoed elsewhere, I'm curious to hear, well, I'll ask Tanzina first. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the efficacy of protests, riots, or whether or, or whether it matters or what it really means to say whether they work or not. In terms of Kaepernick, I think it's it's working in the sense that there's been this perception that the people who are protesting, and I think this is a holdover from decades ago, are just poor and angry and self-destructive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're seeing now, and I, I 
the the protest that I was on the ground for was Ferguson, you know, with mm-hmm. the tear gas, with the militarized police, with I've never seen anything like that in my life. It was very intense and there were levels of protests. You know, there were moments when it was peaceful and there were thousands of people in the middle of the street and then there would be a turn and then the the feeling would change and then things would escalate and mm-hmm. and we would, you know, cover the the entire thing. But since then, You've seen more of this sort of direct action. I think, you know, I, I there was a very skeptical former editor of mine at my previous employer, um, Which was, the, the Times, mm-hmm. who said, well, what the hell is all this really going to accomplish? You know, this all <laughs> this protesting and all this Black Lives Matter. And I said, well, there's all this is a young movement. I mean, first yeah. of all, the fact that it's happening right. is a big deal, right? Yeah. As a brown woman myself and saying, yeah. I've never seen this at this scale, right? And it's being driven by social media, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is... A, the fact that it's happening is important. B, the fact that it's happening and it's now become much more, I don't want to say institutionalized, but much more formalized in a sense that Mm -hmm. there is a platform. I do think that these protests um, have had an impact. They're making news every day, Mm -hmm. right? Do you you have a sense, though, of why why the... The situation on the ground, and I hate the phrase on the ground because it sounds corny, <laughs> in, in each of these particular municipalities is so markedly different. Do you have any sense of why that is? I mean, you work at you work at CNN now, so you're probably yeah. seeing a lot of the <laughs> I ways, see it all ways these are being covered. Mm-hmm. In my estimation, I think Tulsa was sort of an outlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of these protests, when I turned on CNN the other night and watched what was happening in Charlotte, it looked just like what was happening in Ferguson, uh, very similar to what was happening in Baltimore. I think these are driven by anger that a lot of white Americans, and there, and there are white Americans protesting as well. Yeah. This isn't solely, you know, just black people on, on the ground. Right. You know, these are, these are multiracial and multicultural. Depends on the situation. I don't think, like I said, in Ferguson, there were times when the protests were very peaceful yeah. and very organized and very calm, and then there were times when they weren't. And I mm-hmm. think that's a confluence of events that is almost no one can really pinpoint when that's going to change, yeah. right? And I think in some cities, it, it just blows up. In this case, there was no video release. There's no indictment. You know, you, you've had, what, 20 non-indictments so yeah. far in a lot of these in, in a lot of these killings. So there's a frustration point, you know, and I think, I think uh, what was the TI video that came out recently that sort of tried to flip the experience of white and black policing on its head, you yeah. know? It was like, well, what if white Americans were seeing, were subject to this you know, level of seeing these videos every day and right. having their communities, you know, terrorized. I don't know. T.I., you mean The Intercept? Okay. I, no, no, no. T.I., the rapper. Oh. <laughs> you said the T.I. video and like that. I, I work for the parent company of The Intercept and they call it T.I. So oh, I didn't... Was, that's why I was like, I don't remember The Intercept See, I'm trying to video. be cool, Anna. <laughs> no, you're obviously much right. cooler than I am. trying to be like down You're much it. cooler than I am. I'm so not. I'm like... <laughs> Tanner, what about what? What are your thoughts about the question I posed about the efficacy? First of all, I think it's it's a bit of a false question because you know these things to argue the efficacy or discuss the efficacy of it, you know, raises the question of should we be doing it? When in fact these things erupt like volcanoes, they are natural disasters, they are natural occurrences. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like saying, well, should the Hayward Fault slip and cause an earthquake. Well, it's not a question of should. It's going to happen if these pressures build up over time. So it's not a matter of whether they work or their efficacy, but like, what's the result? So if you go back to the 1960s, you look at the political gains that people of color made were largely due to the nonviolent peaceful protest, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, so on and so forth. Zero economic gains. Most of the economic gains in terms of affirmative action, real, here's the money, came after the 1968 riots when King was killed and shit was getting burned down and property was being destroyed and Wall Street felt, you know, the bottom line threatened. And, like, literally, I think it was the the summer before King was killed, like, maybe two Fortune 500 companies had, quote-unquote, affirmative action diversity hiring initiatives. The summer after King, they all had them. Like Every single Fortune 500 company was like, here's, you know, millions of dollars. Get them off the street. Hire them. Hire them to sit in a corner. Who gives a fuck? You know, people forget the impetus for affirmative action came from corporate America, not from the government. The government was following businesses lead on that point. So the the reaction of white America, there is the imp- impulse to say, well, it gets results. It got money. But the reality is it gets knee jerk short term money. Shut it down. Wait, whatever what's it takes. It? What's it? I'm not the right. The the the. The, uh, if we're talking about the, if you're talking about historically, historically protest versus riot. I mean, there's a distinction there when something turns violent and things start to burn down. But then the the longer term effect of that is, yeah, you had lots of money thrown at the situation to quell it 
and there was a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity created because of that. But then white people retreat a little bit further into the suburbs and build the wall of the gated suburbs like about a half a foot higher after every riot. Everything is everything is about white people's feelings. Um, well, <laughs> uh, no, but that I'm just saying those, those are the two side effects is you get a lot of money thrown at the issue to try and get everyone to shut up and go home. Mm-hmm. And then white people back up a few more inches. That's what happens. It's it's not, a you know. Well, I wanna, what I want to know is whether your thinking has evolved since we talked about Colin Kaepernick, because we were talking about the efficacy of his protest, and you didn't right. you didn't think that it was well thought out. And I agreed with you on one point right. with regards to that, but not the others. You know, he's on the cover of Time magazine. Or am I, am I crazy, or did I just see him on the cover of Time magazine? I think he's on the okay. cover, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm just, I'm curious to hear how you think about it after the conversation that we had the other week, because you were kind of questioning the efficacy. Of, of that of, particular thing that he did, because, right, because it was it, a little vague. Okay. But I do think protests can be, uh, of course, incredibly influential. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to leave that here for now. Uh, listeners, especially if you live or have lived in Tulsa or Charlotte, shoot us a voice memo. We love those voice memos. Or send an email to showaboutrace at gmail.com. And we're going to move on to some recommendations. So, Tanner, you're first. So I am now reading. I'm only a little bit into it, but it's one of those books. Like I don't know if you, I, I read, I highlight and and mark stuff as I'm reading. And this is one of those books where like you finish a page and you look back and you've you've underlined the whole page because like every sentence seemed right. to have relevant information. Yeah, uh, it's called Reflections on the Revolution in Europe: Immigration, Islam, and the West by Christopher Caldwell. It goes all the way back to the post-war history of really the start of immigration into Europe and the economic reasons for it, the political reasons for it. To understand what's going on with, with Muslim immigrants in Europe and by proxy what's going on with Muslim immigrants here, it's a fantastic book. Great. And Tanzina, you have a recommendation for our listeners? I had fun with The Get Down. Uh-huh. I don't know if like that's still a thing. I know it was like, no, a thing should, like three weeks ago. No, I haven't seen ago. it, but yeah, I'd love to know what you think of it. I had fun with it. I, it, it, And I think it's maybe because it's so rare to see that many brown faces in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed it. You know, yeah. I, I, I want to see more. I'm not, especially being a native New Yorker, you know, being born in that era. Like, I felt that it was... Something that was a little light, you know, obviously it has stronger moments in it too, but it it goes from being a musical to kind of this weird little sitcom to, I just thought it was fun. And it's from, I'm an OG from that era from New York, and it's nice to see that and to see, quote unquote, Puerto Ricans and black brothers and sisters uh, in front of the camera. Have you watched the whole season? I did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So my recommendation, because you just reminded me actually of my recommendation or what my recommendation should be, because you talked about growing up in New York and black and brown people. And I watched a really interesting documentary last weekend, I think last Saturday, so the day after we taped, called Stretch and Bobbito, Radio That Changed Lives. And I was not aware of Stretch and Bobbito because I didn't grow up in New York in the 80s. I came here in 91 for college. I was not listening to hip-hop or rap. I was stuck, as I still am, in the era or the music that I listened to as a, as a teenager, which was old R&B and some classic rock. I'm like stuck in that in the, in like the 60s and 70s. But <laughs> I had no, you know, I certainly knew of the New York of that era. Of that era. There was something that was much more vibrant about it, to be honest, and less sanitized. I should probably just like put it in context. The documentary is about two DJs, or rather one DJ and one radio host who had a show on the Columbia University radio station, a hip-hop show that I believe ran on maybe Thursday nights from like midnight to 5 a.m. And they had all of these up-and-coming hip-hop slash rap artists coming on to perform and and talk. And there was also like Stretch, who was the DJ, was often playing music too. But, you know, they had like name any famous any famous rapper and, and it's very likely that he or she went on that show oftentimes before he or she was signed to a label, including Jay-Z. These guys were young. They were maybe like 19, 20. And then there's footage of them now. You know, they're older, grizzled, and then kind of reliving those moments of what it was like to be that young and energetic and and, and the difference that they made in, in terms of the music industry and legitimizing um, what was then more a more nascent form of, and less much less commercialized form of music. So that's my recommendation, Stretch and Bobito, B-O-B-B-I-T-O. <laughs> I forget what those guys' real names are, but the, that those were their radio DJ call handles. So that's my recommendation for uh, the week of the 23rd. Before we go on, we should probably just uh, riff on the fact that Ted Cruz just endorsed Donald Trump. That lying sick of... <laughs> the man he called a sniffling coward 
the man who insulted his wife and mother. That's it. Latino vote is locked in. (laughs) It's just, it's astonishing. Someone interviewed Jane Goodall and compared, uh, asked about Trump in terms of like male dominance rituals. As as you know, as performed by you know gorillas and chimpanzees and so forth, she says, "Oh, it's absolutely that's exactly what he does." And Trump, yeah, and it's amazing how he is unmanned. Like all of these men who have basically just put their balls in a jar and given them to Donald Trump, and they're going to get nothing in return. That's because- disgusting. <laughs> Wait, let me just let yeah. me let me just say this. I recall that piece, or I recall her discussion about like male dominance rituals and how they apply to Trump or how they're enacted or expressed by Trump. And here's the weird thing. There's nothing dominant about Trump than what he wants you to think is dominant, meaning I actually see him as a very small, sad man. He is. Well, you, you, were not, you were not cowed by it, but he is, he is, what is to say about all of these men who have for months called him dangerous, unstable, criminal, and then they go sniveling to his, his, his side. I don't know that it's that they're afraid of him. I, I, I just think it's that they don't have any principles, period. I don't know if it's fear. I think it's just like blah. There's no there there. Sorry, I inter- interrupted I you. think it's that people yep. want to make sure they'll have a job if he gets elected. I mean, <laughs> there's probably some of that. Like, ooh, like, this, this might happen. You know, I should get in your cabinet or I should so wait, get in your... did Ted Cruz suddenly get afraid that Donald Trump was going to be elected president today? Is that why? I mean... I, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand the rationale behind it. And, and you know, it, there was an interesting... A friend of mine who's a, a presidential historian told me that... So Prescott Bush, who was the Bush senior, supported the Civil Rights Act and was one of those old Rockefeller, you know, noblesse oblige Republican of the old school. And George Bush was at the time running for Senate in Texas, George Bush, H.W. Bush. And his dad told him, you need to support the Civil Rights Act. This is the right thing to do. And Bush senior said, no, I can't win in Texas if I support that. So he came out against the Civil Rights Act and then he lost the election anyway and then eventually got in line with Reagan and the whole situation. And then his son, 20 years later, is then bested and humiliated by the man who is the heir to his father's capitulation to these forces of white nationalism and hatred. And it just goes to that not standing by your principles will come back on you. The sins of the father come back on the son. God, the whole history, human history is about dick swinging contests. Sure. Anyway, that's all for today. Our producer is A.C. Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. And reminder, we are now accepting voice memos. I love voice memos. Send more voice memos. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Tanner Colby, Tanzina Vega, and Jamel Bowie, I'm Anna Holmes. 